Thanks, everyone, for coming out. It's the final night of the Rising Tour. I've been on tour since the middle of May. So, woo! <laughs> um, we'll definitely be having some champagne later. My dad is in the audience, so huge thanks to him for coming out and being, um, you know, the foundational support uh, that built this book. And to good friends who I haven't seen in a long time, um, it's just really nice to be with you all here on this night. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about how this book came into being, and then I'll do a reading, and then I'd love to answer questions. So I'll start by just saying, I got interested in sea level rise in 2011. I was sent by a magazine called Le Monde Diplomatique to do a story on the India-Bangladesh border fence, which is the longest border fence in the world and was being completed that year. And one thing that really profoundly struck me was that in Bangladesh, a lot of people told me that the fence wasn't really an issue, that you could bribe your way through, that you could sneak through in the middle of the night. Um, their primary concern for a lot of these agricultural communities was that saline had started to arrive um, in the aquifer and was fundamentally causing a lot of their crops to fail. And we're talking like 100 miles inland from the ocean. And I will never forget walking on this like dusty island for two hours behind a young boy named Faharul, and he told me that um, his brother had already left, um, had crossed over into India, and he too was probably gonna leave his family land um, because it was no longer land that could provide for, for them. And I came back to the United States and I was writing my article on the India-Bangladesh border fence and I wrote my editor and I said, I really wanna get this information into this piece. And he said, you know, I hired you to write a story on the India-Bangladesh border fence and you have 2,000 words, so like, no. <laughs> um, he gave me a very small sidebar. It was 150 words and I tried to cram some of that information in there. And I think that was this moment that research trip really fundamentally changed the way I started to see the world around me. One, I started to be able to see in the physical landscape that there were signs that sea level rise was already happening in the present moment. And I understood that it was displacing people already. Um, and that climate migration had probably, was already underway. And I, was also a little bit reluctant to write about Bangladesh. I, in that context, I didn't want to write this story that felt a little bit like a cliche, a drowning Bangladesh story. And I thought, you know what, if it's happening in Bangladesh, it has to be happening in the United States too. We also have a lot of low-lying areas. We have the Mississippi River Delta. Um, why don't I go out in search of places in the United States that are dealing with some of the same issues? And maybe if I can tell stories from those communities, this 
global phenomenon of sea level rise will start to feel more important, more prescient to a, an audience in the United States. And uh, when I started writing the book, I mean, I had a hard time selling it. Everyone was like, oh, climate change, sure, whatever. Um, but eventually I sold it to Milkweed and they've been a phenomenal partner in this undertaking. So um, all of that is to say, you know, it. When I started, it felt like I was sort of digging at an issue that wasn't in the front or forefront of people's consciousness. And last year, in September, one in 10 US citizens was living in a county with a disaster declaration. Suddenly, everyone was really starting to pay attention to wildfires and sea level rise and stronger storms and higher tides. And so, Unfortunately, in the time it took me to write this book, I think a lot of these issues have become more present for many of us. Um, so tonight I'll read from a chapter that is takes place in Miami. And the last thing I want to say is that every chapter in this book opens with a testimony. Um, that is a short essay that's written entirely in the voice of a resident of that community and is the result of extensive interviewing. So I would you know, interview a person multiple times, record all our conversations, transcribe them, and then edit out about 95% of the text so that what reaches readers is this like clear narrative arc. And I tried to tell the story of how that person woke up to the reality that the place where they've lived often their entire lives is fundamentally changing and then what they're doing as a result. And it seems to me that that is one of the things that people are responding to most with this book. Um, it is it pulls people, I think, into the living rooms of those who are suffering these floods and helps them understand in an immediate sense what it's like to live through um, that trauma. And I'm now just thinking that, no, I'll do my usual reading. I was like, maybe I'll read a testimony, but um, I, think, I think I'll stick to the script, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Um, you just need to know they exist, and I would love to talk about them afterwards in the Q&A. So the testimony that starts this section is um, a guy named Dan Kipnis, and he is talking about putting his house on the market in his testimony. He says, I know my street's flooding. I know that sea level rise is getting worse and worse, so I'm going to sell it now and get out before my house loses value. I'm gonna get out well, I still can, and move my equity somewhere else. And to write a testimony, you know, I like to collaborate with the people whose voice appears in the book. So every time I sent him a version of his testimony and he would send me back comments, I'd say, Dan, have you sold your house yet? And he would say, no, not yet. I lowered the price again. I lowered the price again. Um, and actually, I got an email from him like yesterday, and he still hasn't sold his house. And he's lowered the price over 10 times, and now there's 15 homes for sale on his block. So the thing that he was hoping to um, avoid 
which is, you know, losing a big chunk of his retirement, of his personal equity, um, didn't happen for him. And so for me, again, this is, there's many m different matrix matrices in which sea level rise is really happening now and fundamentally reshaping our coasts. And so that's one of them. Um, I will read from this chapter called Pulse. The last thing that you need to know is that almost every community I write about is situated on top of or alongside a tidal wetland. One thing that surprised me writing this book was that Often, but not always, tidal wetland communities in the United States are lower income and communities of color. And that is, I think, because this land, which has always been flood prone, was often, for much of post-contact history in the United States, considered close to worthless. And people have chosen to live in these places as a kind of financial survival tactic. It's the affordable place that you can live in Miami. It's the affordable place you can live in New York City. Um, so that's the last thing you need to know, is that um, this book really is also in a strange way about tidal wetlands and the people who inhabit them. Pulse. In 1890, just over 6,000 people lived in the damp lowlands of South Florida. Since then, the wetlands that covered half the state have largely been drained. Strip malls have replaced seminal camps, and the population has increased a thousandfold. Over roughly the same amount of time, the number of black college degree holders in the United States also increased a thousandfold, as did the speed at which we fly the combined carbon emissions of the Middle East, and the entire population of Thailand. About 60 of the region's more than 6 million residents have gathered in the Cox Science Building at the University of Miami on a sunny Saturday morning in 2016 to hear Harold Wanless, or Hal, chair of the geology department, speak about sea level rise. Only 7% of the heat being trapped by greenhouse gases is stored in the atmosphere, Hal begins. Do you know where the other 93% lives? A teenager, wrists lined in aquamarine beaded bracelets, rubs sleep from her eyes, returns her head to its resting position in her palm. The man seated behind me roots around in his briefcase for a breakfast bar. No one raises a hand. In the ocean, Hal continues, that heat is expanding the ocean, which is contributing to sea level rise, and is also, more importantly, creating the setting for something we really don't want to have happen, rapid melt of ice. A woman wearing a sequin teal top opens her five-star notebook and starts writing things down. The guy behind her shovels spoonfuls of passion fruit-flavored Chaobani yogurt into his tiny mouth. Hal's three sons are perched in the next row back. One has a ponytail, one is in a suit, and the third crosses and uncrosses his gray street sneakers. The one with the ponytail brought a water bottle, and the other two sip Starbucks. And behind the rows and rows of sparsely occupied seats, at the very back of the amphitheater, an older woman with a gold brocade bear on her top paces back and forth. A real estate developer interrupts Hal to ask, is someone recording this? Yes, the cameraman coughs, 
Besides, Hal adds, I say the same damn thing five times a week. Hal, who's in his early 70s and has been studying sea level rise for over 40 years, pulls at his Burt Reynolds mustache, readjusts his taupe corduroy suit, and continues. On the screen above his head, clips from a documentary on climate change show glacial tongues of ice the size of Manhattan tumbling into the sea. The big story in Greenland and Antarctica is that the warming ocean is working its way in deep under the ice sheets, causing the ice to collapse faster than anyone predicted, which in turn will cause sea levels to rise faster than anyone predicted. According to Marco Rubio, the junior senator from Florida, rising sea levels are uncertain, their connection to human activity tenuous. And yet, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change expects roughly two feet of rise by century's end, the United Nations predicts three, and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration estimates an upper limit of six and a half feet. Take the six million people who live in South Florida today and divide them into two groups. Those who live less than six and a half feet above current high tide and everybody else. The numbers slice nearly evenly, heads or tails, call it in the air. If you live here, all you can do is hope that when you put down roots, your choice was somehow prophetic. But Hal says it really doesn't matter if you live six feet above sea level or 65, because he, like James Hansen, believes that all of these predictions are, to put it mildly, very, very low. The rate of sea level rise is currently doubling every seven years, and if it were to continue in this manner, Ponzi scheme style, we would have 205 feet of sea level rise by 2095, Hal says. And while I don't think we're gonna get that much water by the end of the century, I do think we have to take seriously the possibility that we could have something like 15 feet by then. It's a little after nine o'clock in the morning. Hal's son stops sipping their lattes and the oceanographic scientist behind me puts down his handful of M&Ms. If Hal Wanless is right, every single object I have seen over the past 72 hours, the periodic table of elements hanging above his left shoulder, the buffet currently loaded with refreshments, the smoothie stand at my seaside hotel, the beach umbrellas and the oxygen bars, the Johnny Rockets and the seashell shop, the lecture hall with its hundreds of mostly empty teal swivel chairs, all of it, will be underwater in the not-so-distant future. Dig into geologic history and you discover this. When sea levels have risen in the past, they've usually not done so gradually, but rather in rapid surges, jumping as much as 50 feet over three centuries. Scientists call these events meltwater pulses, because the near-biblical rise in the height of the ocean is directly correlated to the melting of ice and the process of deglaciation. The very events featured in the documentary footage Hal has got running on a screen above his head. 
Hal shows us a clip of the largest glacial calving event ever recorded. It starts with a chunk of ice the size of Miami's tallest building, tumbling, head over tail, off the tip of the Greenland ice sheet. Then the Southeast Financial Center goes, displaying its cool blue underbelly. It is a coltish thing, smooth and oddly muscular. The ground then between the two turns to Arctic ice dust and the ocean roils up. Next, chunks of ice the size of the Marquis residences crash away and with it goes 900 Biscayne Bay. Suddenly, everything between the Brickell neighborhood and Park West is gone. The clip begins again and I watch in awe as a section of the Jacobsvian Glacier half the size of all of Miami falls into the sea. Greenland is currently calving chunks of ice so massive they produce earthquakes up to six and seven on the Richter scale, Hal says, as the city of ice breaks apart. There was not much noticeable ice melt before the 90s, and now it accelerates every year, exceeding all predictions. It will likely cause a pulse of meltwater into the oceans. In medicine, a pulse is something regular a predictable throb of blood through veins produced by a beating heart. It is reliable and steady, so definite that the lack of a pulse is sometimes considered synonymous with death. A healthy adult will have a resting heart rate of 60 to 100 beats per minute every day until they don't. But a meltwater pulse is the opposite. It is an anomaly, the exception to the 15,000-year rule. From 1900 to 2000, the glacier on the screen retreated eight miles. From 2001 to 2010, it pulled back nine more. Over a single decade, the Jacobsvian Glacier lost more ice than it had during the previous century. And then there is this film clip, recorded over 70 minutes, minutes in which the glacier retreats a full mile across a calving face three miles wide. This is why I believe we are witnessing the beginning of the largest meltwater pulse in modern human history, Hal says. As the ice sheets above Hal's head fall away and the snacks on the buffet disappear, Topography is transformed from a backwater physical science into the single most important factor, determining the longevity of the sunshine state. The man seated next to me leans over. If what he says is even half true, he whispers, Florida's about to be wiped off the map. A few days later, I spend the afternoon in Shorecrest, a neighborhood a couple miles north of downtown. To get there, I leave the beach behind and drive to Archie's drive past Archie's Live Bait and Tackle, Deals and Discounts 2, Raphael Food Store, Royal Budget Inn, Family Dollar, and Goodwill. As I continue north, the buildings all lose their mirrored glass and their extra floors until most are single story and made from stucco. It isn't raining when I arrive in Shorecrest, and there isn't a storm offshore. The day is as clear and as blue as the filigree on a porcelain plate. 
but the streets are still full of water. I watch as a woman wades ankle deep across 10th Avenue. She's gathered her long russet colored skirt in her right hand, and in her left hand she holds a pair of Jesus sandals. When she reaches the bus stop, she sits down and puts her shoes on. On the corner, a man stands facing traffic, holding a sign that simply reads, please help, food. We get flooded with just about every high tide, the woman tells me, glancing in the direction of the panhandler and the approaching bus. And if the moon is big, it's worse. All along the country, from Portland, Maine to Key West, sunny day flooding is increasingly frequent. Many places in the Sunshine State are so low-lying that high tide, when coupled with something as innocuous as a full moon, can cause the streets to brim with water. Sometimes the tide simply rises above the seawalls and starts to spill into the roadways. In other cases, it enters the neighborhood through the stormwater infrastructure below ground. The very pipes designed to reduce flooding by ushering rain out instead give salt water a chance to work its way in. In Shorecrest, I spend a minute watching the bay burble up through the street grate and onto Northeast Little River Drive before whipping out my camera and snapping half a dozen photos. Just then, a man walks up behind me, peers down, and says, I've seen fish come swimming out. No, you haven't. I have, he says, pushing his sunglasses up. I've been here 20 years. When I first moved, we used to flood once a year, maybe twice, and now it's constant. His name is Robert Cisneros. He grew up in Cuba and moved to Florida in 1962, dropping the final O in Roberto. He thought the name change might help his fledgling boat repair company succeed. Robert points to his house and his yard, which are catty corner from the drain we stand by, and says, I used to have a nice garden here, and now you see how it is. The water comes in and sits, and everything dies because of the salt. It's not rain that floods this place, it's the ocean. I just bought some stones to put here to try to keep the water out, but other than that, what can I do? I ask if the city is helping the neighborhood come up with short-term solutions, and Robert gets upset. I think they need to raise the street. They need to install pumps. But those are the kinds of things that only happen on the beach. They're not giving any of us here any relief. Like Miami Beach, Shorecrest was built atop a former wetland. On the Strip, where billions of dollars in real estate investment are at risk, the government is using a mix of property taxes and municipal bonds to invest in formal sea level rise adaptation. But in Shorecrest, Hialeah, and Sweetwater, low to middle income communities where the majority of residents are people of color, and municipal services have long been difficult to maintain, thanks to the discriminatory banking practice known as redlining and the resulting decline in property taxes. Here, residents are expected to remove their shoes and wade through the water. Robert shakes his head in disbelief. I wanted to leave this house to my kids, 
but soon it's going to be worthless, he says. On his stoop sit two pairs of rubber boots, ready for the flood that is already here. The following Friday, as I drive from my hotel back to the Cox Science Center, I think about what would happen if all the water stored in Antarctica's and Greenland's ice sheets were released. The ocean would rise up, up over our driveways, up over our decorative bushes and our front steps, up over our decks and railings, up over the windows and roof gables, until all of our coastal homes disappeared beneath the flat blue surface of the sea where clouds would skate and bloom as though nothing and no one ever existed below. I drive past the high rises currently under construction with breezy names like Aria on the Bay, Juan Paraiso, and Solitaire, past two Lamborghinis, two Ferraris, one Rolls Royce, one brand new, and one brand new Bentley with a matte white coat of paint and chrome hubcaps past the port where six cruise ships pause, past a string of coin-sized islands covered in not-so-coin-sized houses, Star and Fisher, Bell and Hibiscus, San Marco and Rivo Alto. And I, as I pass, I imagine all of it underwater. Past the new Perez Art Museum, which already sits on 15-foot-high stilts as a safeguard against higher tides and stronger storms. Past the Crescent Heights Inspirational Living construction site on the corner of Alton Road and 6th Street. The intersection that flooded twice in 2000, four times in 2010, and eight times in 2013 past the floodwater pumps and the street elevation projects meant to serve the imagined residents of the wave, the name Crescent Heights Inspirational Living gave their new development, past CVS, Walgreens, H&M, and Forever 21, past Petco Animal Supplies and Wet Willie's Cocktail Lounge, past the South Seas Hotel and Eden Rock, the Shore Club and the Ritz, past a couple with sun hats and beach chairs and a dachshund. In my mind, there's no tidal wave and no wreckage. Instead, everything is simply, coolly covered by blue. I'm ashamed to say that when I finally reach the Cox Science Building, I sit in my rented Toyota Yaris and feel something close to smug. I imagine this is how the Oracle of Delphi felt, divining the future from a fistful of smoke. Love of money, nothing else will ruin Sparta, she said to Lucregis. Yes, I think, love of money, nothing else will ruin Miami. But then I remember that water is not discerning. It doesn't know the difference between a millionaire and the person who repairs the millionaire's yacht. The thought stops me in my self-righteous tracks. I once heard Katie Ford read from a book of poems she wrote after Katrina. She said, in a voice I understood as God's voice on the night the water arrived in the city, what do you expect me to do? I am not human. 
I gave you each other, so save each other. That night, the moon is big and full, making the ocean weightier. The salt water unspools in the streets and continues drowning by degrees the low-lying land that lines our shore. Soon I think, if Hal is right, all of this will be underwater, not just temporarily, but for good. In the meantime, in Miami Beach, the water pumps were. Well, five miles north of here, there is a barefoot woman who carries her sandals in her hands, wades through the all of it that is always now rising. I would love to have a conversation with you guys. Questions, ideas, experiences. So the question is, which part of the West Coast did I look at? Um, I should say that about like three years into researching this book, my editor was like, so you have to go to the West Coast now, <laughs> which is not a problem for me. I love the West Coast. Um, but I just happened to have gotten a lot of stories that were East Coast based. Um, I have two chapters that take place on the West Coast. The first actually counterintuitively takes place at the H.J. Andrews Experimental Forest, which is run by Oregon State University in sort of the space between, in the central cascades between Eugene and Bend. And its fame comes from the fact that they are one of the country's long-term ecological research centers. They're funded through the National Science Foundation. And so they're really interested in creating long-term data sets, which in the world of science isn't always the most popular thing because you have sort of the tick of the tenure clock and you want to get published and uh, secure your position at a university. So these are special sites around the country that look at changes, you know, over decades since since the, these projects began. And the Andrews is famous because they were able to show the data that spotted owls only breed in old growth trees. So the, the cessation of the felling of old growth in the Pacific Northwest happened because of the data collected at the Andrews. So that chapter, I went there, I was the writer in residence at the forest, which is just like a really cool thing to be able to do. And I got there and I thought I was gonna edit Rising. And then I started going out um, every once in a while with members of a team that was tracking um, the impact climate change was having on breeding birds in the Andrews. And as I started to look up the migratory routes of a lot of the birds that summer in this forest, that reproduce in this forest, I realized that so many of them passed through tidal wetlands. And I was really surprised to find out that half of our endangered species in this country are tidal wetlands, or wetlands dependent. Um, so that chapter becomes kind of a meditation on the more than human world that needs these places perhaps even more desperately than we do. Um, 
The other chapter that takes place on the West Coast is all in the San Francisco Bay area. And um, I went out there because in 2016, they passed a measure called Measure AA, where, um, which was a $12 a year property tax for everyone who lives in a county that abuts the bay. And it passed with like 70% approval, which to me was just mind boggling. Like that people, it's very hard to get anything, like anybody to any area to vote, you know, with more than two thirds on anything. And then to impose property tax for wetlands restoration. That was what that money went for, is for wetlands restoration in the Bay Area. I thought that was really stunning. So I went out there and spent a lot of time with um, the folks who were carrying out these restoration projects. And they are trying to restore 45,000 acres of wetlands in the Bay Area, which is equal to three Manhattans. Like, this is an incredible undertaking. Um, and there are two things that fundamentally complicate that undertaking in the Bay Area. Um, one is sort of about the fact that sea levels can or that wetlands can keep pace with rising sea levels. Um, we're not sure if they can keep pace with the accelerated rising sea levels that we're starting to see, but we know that in general, wetlands can migrate up and in. If they have space, they can accrete um, sediment. We also know that the San Francisco Bay is actually pretty sediment rich, um, probably because of the mining, amazingly. So, um, Wetlands can move up and in, but in a place like San Francisco, you've got human communities built along the backside of every single one of those wetlands. So um, when you have that and sea levels are rising, the wetland just gets squeezed by the rising sea. It can't move in, so it drowns in place. So what they're doing in San Francisco is they're building a lot of these wetlands restoration projects at like a 100 to 1 slope with this idea that if they can build topographical diversity into their restoration projects, they might help the wetlands survive the next 50 years. Um, a lot, you spend time with these folks who've committed their lives to wetlands restoration, and you ask like, okay, but is that enough? And a lot of people don't wanna talk about that. Um, one of my favorite people in San Francisco was a guy, oh God, what was his name? Jeremy Lowe. And he'd been working in wetlands restoration for like more than 20 years and natural sort of sea level rise adaptation projects. And he said, these projects, these horizontal levees buy us time to wrap our minds around the fact that none of this is going to work. We have to move people, we have to move infrastructure, and we have to get out of the way if we want these wetlands and wetland species to survive. So we're building a buffer, but this is not a long-term solution. Um, the, the other thing that complicates wetlands restoration in the Bay Area is that a lot of the communities in the South Bay are historically low-income communities, and 
you have now Silicon Valley on one side and rising sea levels on the other. And in some ways, the position that they're in is really not that dissimilar to like an endemic species, wetland species. They're being squeezed by rising sea levels and gentrification on the other side. And as you put in these wetlands restoration projects, that land becomes more valuable because now it's adjacent to a parkland. So um, it's complicated. <laughs> Um, the question is, how do you talk to climate change, talk to kids about climate change? Um, most of my friends who have kids, they're at like the three to five year old range right now, or they're toddlers. Um, I noticed last night after my reading in Portland, I visited with some great old friends and they have a two and a half year old. And I was aware that we were talking about this in her presence without censoring anything. And I'm pretty sure she doesn't fully grasp any of it. And I was wondering what it was going to be like to grow up with those conversations that the adults are having um, in your presence. My instinct is always, yeah, I don't have experience with five to 10 year olds or, but my instinct is not to talk down to kids and to sort of level with them. Um, and at the same time, foster that wonder for the natural world. Because I know that like the reason I wrote this book is because I was raised hiking mountains with my parents. And there was some part of me that felt like, uh, one, that I, if I was going to be a writer, I knew I had to write about something I loved because it consumes your life. And I was like, I do want to write about humans and the environment. And that started at like age, I mean, in the womb, they took me hiking. So that started really early. Um, and I think one thing that I think a lot about is just this idea that perhaps we... At this moment in human evolution, especially if you're, you know, well off and racially, socially sort of secure, I have lived in a state of relative security for most of my life. And I do think that that is a kind of illusion and this idea that I think we're coming into a moment where we have to really open ourselves to dwelling with uncertainty. I don't think you need to, like, tell them the world is ending but that the world is changing and is changing in really fundamental ways and the way that it once was isn't the way that it's going to be. I think that um, having that conversation about uncertainty is maybe a good place to start, but I would love to know if you have any hot tips. <laughs> I've been thinking about it. I saw, I've written a couple of children's books and I was thinking recently, um, I wonder when I'll, try to tackle writing a children's book about climate change. The question is, have I stayed in touch with the people that are in this book, and are they enjoying their notoriety? Um, I have stayed in touch with basically everybody who I wrote about um, and whose voices are actually in this book. Like, this book is a has a chorus of you know, firsthand experiences rising from the country shore. 
It's been so fascinating to stay in touch with all of those people. One person that jumps to mind is a woman named Franca. Um, I'm not going to remember her last name right now to save my life. Franca um, lived in Staten Island in a community called Oakwood Beach. And after Hurricane Sandy, nine different coastal communities along Staten Island's eastern shore came together in a huge grassroots movement to advocate that the state purchase and demolish their homes. Um, multiple people died. 23 people died on the eastern shore of Staten Island during Sandy. And uh, that entire coast is all former wetlands. And today it's a lot of working class, right-leaning um, folks who I think for decades found themselves like at the bottom of the municipal repair list. It's like we flood somewhat regularly. No one's ever out here to help us fix the roads. They saw that there was a lot of funding being released for disaster recovery. And they um, started to petition the state to purchase and demolish these homes. Three of those communities got buyouts. Over 600 homes on the eastern shore of Staten Island were demolished after Sandy. And that land has gone back to being a wetland. I was back there recently. And uh, it's pretty amazing to me how much um, that environment has rebounded. Also, a lot of those people who participated in the buyout um, stayed within a mile of their home so Staten Island has some topographical diversity. It has a big hill in the middle of it called Tote Hill, which is the second highest um, spot on the eastern seaboard. And when I taught at the College of Staten Island, I used to ride over Tote Hill every day. It was humongous. Um, so a lot of folks have stayed in the neighborhood. One person that jumped to mind when you asked me, do I stay in touch with those people? Yes, I stayed in touch with the three community leaders that started the buyout movements. I went back there a couple months ago, and they all still live nearby, and they hang out together all the time. And not a lot about their lives have fundamentally changed. They just don't live in the floodplain anymore, which I think is really wise. Um, one person that I recently heard from, Franca, she was one, one of these people who, for the longest time, didn't want to participate in the buyout because um, her financial situation was such that she wouldn't walk away with a, enough of a nest egg, she felt, for a long time. Um, she bought her house fairly shortly before the crash, and so even at pre-storm price value, um, you know, she wouldn't get a huge, she wouldn't get the, the nest egg that she put into it back out. And so she stayed and she stayed and she stayed. And all of the homes around her got bulldozed. And she recently wrote me um, and said, I've moved to Florida, which I was like, well, Franca, I gotta get it like farther away from sea, from sea level rise, but I've moved to Florida, I've moved in with my extended family there, and I really don't know why I held on for so long. This was the right move, it feels so good not to be living with that constant fear. Um, as for if any of these people are famous, 
I have no idea. I haven't heard from anyone say, oh, I'm getting contacted because of the book. Um, but I will say, you know, we got the glorious news that there's going to be a New York Times Sunday book review on Sunday of Rising. Woo! And um, they do quote one of the testimony guys, Dan Kipnis. And so I wonder if he'll get contacted after that. He's like sort of the only name that's mentioned in that review. And I wonder if that'll, you know, if people will seek him out because of it. But so far, no one's uh, complained. I, you know, I was a little more nervous about that, that folks wouldn't want their names out there in a really fundamental way. I sent the book to every single person who's in it. So I got 25 copies from Milkweed contributor copies, and they all uh, are in the hands of the folks who are in this book. And on this book tour, I've been visiting with a lot of them, and the response has just been overwhelmingly positive. The thing that I heard a lot writing this book was, we feel so alone with our problem. We don't know anybody else who's in our situation. And um, I think for the people in this book to hold the book and say like, we're not alone with this. It's so many people are in our, in our soggy shoes. Um, that was really one of my biggest hopes in writing Rising, that I would be able to um, shine a light on this issue and then start to draw wetland communities into a conversation with one another because we have a lot of global conversations about sea level rise adaptation but we don't have a lot of conversations about what do you do with uh, the small town on the edge of Louisiana what do you do with the satellite community in New York City they're not going to get you know the living sea, sea dunes and the um, tidal walls in the same way that other places will so the last thing I want to say about that is great resource if you are in a tidal wetland community. Um, there is, or a riverine community, if you're in a community that floods. Last year, after the hurricane season that we had, um, a group called Flood Forum USA started. And they are a national network of flood survivors that share information about how to get resources, how to advocate to your local politicians, um, how to survive a storm, evacuate a storm, what do you do in the aftermath? And they have a partnership with Northwestern University. And Northwestern is assigning um, pro bono hydrologists to these communities to do assessments that they can then take and bring to their local politicians to ask for um, more just flood infrastructure. And they're amazing. So Flood Forum USA, in eight months, nine months, they've become 27,000 members strong. So I think we are coming to this moment of awareness and awakening that we're all in this together, whether we like it or not. One last question. Yeah. Okay, one, yeah, let's do two more then. Yeah, so the question is um, that the question of sort of what is it like to write about climate change and did you ever hit a kind of existential or emotional wall where it felt really difficult to keep writing and did that shift um, the way I wrote the book? 
I definitely hit an existential wall about two years into this book. Absolutely. I remember saying to my husband, um, I was at the time also trying to put together a syllabus to teach a class of climate change fiction. And I remember saying to my husband, like, I don't know if I can keep doing this right now. And I took a step back and took about two months off from the project. And it's interesting, I've never really thought of that as being a sort of crux moment, but in, perhaps it was, because I did definitely much more recently, like in the past two years, as, as this project comes closer to the present tense, I've noticed that I'm more interested in the stories of communities that are coming together, advocating for themselves, fundamentally changing the circumstances of their lives to um, rise to the challenge of rising seas. And I think in some ways that started to give me a lot of hope. So I think that unfortunately we live in a moment where witnessing, understanding that environmental change is ongoing and accelerating is really hard for us because we live so much of our lives at like 16 inches in front of our faces with computers and devices. And I was talking to an eco-psychologist who said, when you spend a lot of time looking at that distance, you actually start to lose the physical capability to perceive worlds that are farther away from you than that. And I think that a way for me to understand and sink into and find a source of hope is this idea that as the ground beneath our feet starts to flood, we can't not look at it. And I think that we do live in a moment where climate change is coming home in a very physical, tangible way to so many people that it is in a strange way like reinvigorating our understanding of human beings and our relationship to the environment. So I do find hope in that. Um, I also just like found that I had to exercise all the time. <laughs> like if I needed, I just needed endorphins and I would find myself, you know, hitting, hitting low points and saying, I'm going to go on a 60-mile bike ride. Um, I'm going to spend two days in the woods alone and hike my brains out. A lot Writing residencies are amazing for that because I would write all morning and then I would hike in the afternoon. And that felt like, okay, I can keep this up because it is, um, it's tough. Sure, so there's sort of two parts to this question. One is um, this book is really tied up in a, a question in a sense of like private property and how do you um, navigate private property and it's inundation but also your like emotional relationship to that place and how fundamentally um, I think, and, and maybe I'm paraphrasing incorrectly, but sort of out, and how fundamentally sort of like steeped in late capitalism a lot of these questions are. Um, 
And then the second question is about an op-ed that I wrote in the New York Times a couple days ago about FEMA's proposed changes to the buyout program. And I think I'm going to start with that one because I think maybe it's going to spiral me into the other one, I hope. Um, so one thing that I became, I think these two questions actually are pretty related. I became really interested in managed retreat as an adaptation strategy as I wrote this book, given you know what we know about what wetland species need in order to survive, in order, I mean, I think, you know, in a basic sense, if we can't get out of the way, we will cause the extinction of half of the endangered species in this country, just because we can't figure out how to loosen up our idea of this is my home and it has to always be here and I paid for it and I'm not leaving. So. Um, I became really interested in this idea, and or maybe a different, let me rephrase that. I think that if we can't loosen up our idea that coasts are places where we can generate income through property ownership, that would be a better way of putting it, um, then I think that we'll be in trouble for a lot of reasons. Um, so, after Harvey, 3,900 people wrote the Harris County Flood District asking to be bought out. That is like the most interest we've ever seen in buyouts in the history of the buyout program, which has been around since like the late 80s. And I think that it's a program that we need to start to think about sort of integrating into the National Flood Insurance Program, because right now if you have flood insurance and you make a claim, you are required to rebuild in place. So there are homes in this country that have been rebuilt 30 times, have flooded 30 times, have been rebuilt 30 times, and I'll tell you, we all pay for that, right? That money comes from taxpayers. Um, their insurance premiums are heavily subsidized by taxpayers. It's, it's a heavily subsidized program. So we're all paying for this collective redevelopment in the floodplain. So I think that we need to fundamentally start to think about how do you link subsidized flood insurance to the possibility of a buyout later. So if you're going to take the subsidies, you have to be perhaps interested in being bought out if your area is repeatedly flooded and you have a lot of neighbors and parcels that are sort of in a similar position. Um, so that's like, okay, we needed some groundwork on some of these like crazy federal programs in order to get at this question. So after Harvey, 3,900 people wanted to be bought out. I figured that we would see, um, and, and Roy Wright, uh, the head of the National Flood Insurance Program through FEMA said, we're working on a way to bring the buyout option to the front of disaster recovery. We know we need to get better at it. We know we need to be doing more of it. We're working on it. And then like three months later, FEMA proposed to change the rules that govern a buyout so that instead of the land where the house once stood being open space in perpetuity, acting as a natural buffer in the storms to come, uh, the proposed change is that it can be redeveloped. So the home purchased, demolished, 
and then a new home built there. So um, I figured, though I'm, I, I'm not certain that that's probably due to develop, developers putting pressure, specifically in Houston, because we know that Houston is an area that had zero zoning, and they've backfilled 30% of their wetlands in the past like 20 years. From 1992 to 2010, they filled in 30% of their wetlands. So part of the reason why Harvey was so disastrous is because they lost all of these natural sponges that absorb water um, during big flood events. So I think if you start to talk about buying out those parcels, developers get really nervous that they're losing the opportunity to continue to make money. And I'll tell you, you know, they develop a parcel and they sell it. A developer's time frame is often about five years. Once that property is sold, they're not responsible when the roads flood, we pay for that. They're not responsible when those homes are damaged, we pay for that. So they don't, you know, they don't ever become financially responsible for building in these really horrible places to build, places that we shouldn't be building. Um, so the other question is this question about uh, home ownership. And I guess that's also, in a really radical sense, why I'm also interested in buyouts. Because if you go to sort of pre-contact history in the United States, wetlands were always considered place, not always, that's probably a sweeping generalization, but are considered sort of places of abundance that you would often have multiple different indigenous groups um, moving through them and like harvesting shellfish and um, living off of the wealth of these lands. They're really productive spaces and they weren't, you know, sort of like sectioned off and you own this and we own that. They were sort of held as a kind of commons. Um, that's certainly true in the Bay Area, also true in the Narragansett Bay. So the places that I know the, the most, that, that rings true to me. Um, so I do think that we have to start to think about the fact that the coastline is shifting. And if it's going to fundamentally continue to shift, maybe um, coasts, the lowest lying land needs to be a commons of sorts. And I think that the fact that we're physically and financially at risk when we as individuals sort of demand permanence in those places, I think it's sort of fundamentally shaking our idea of who we are and where we come from and what home is. And I do see, again, sort of a potential for radical new ways of inhabiting these spaces that um, will certainly pose challenges to capitalism. So um, the last thing I want to say on that note, and then I'll let you all go, I always forget to say this. There's this line in here where I talk about one Rolls Royce and one brand new Bentley with a matte white coat of paint and chrome hubcaps. And I just realized that, and like the CVSs and the wet willies, this book is just so steeped in all of these uh, things that are immediately recognizable to us and that are totally the 
the edifice of late capitalism. And I think it's really fascinating to me that it just sort of is the backdrop of the entire book. But also, that Bentley looked really cool. <laughs> um, so on that note, thank you all.